0: the chumba life is for everybody so go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
2: hi i'm neil and i'm ken and we are from the triviality podcast a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge The school district that I teach in recently asked me to present a teacher training seminar on the best health and wellness apps that are out there. Unfortunately, I use very few of them, so I spoke to a number of colleagues and installed the best of them on my smartphone. So two weekends ago, my wife and I were up in Warrensburg, New York, which is just a bit north of Lake George, and we were attending their annual town-wide garage sale, which they bill as the world's largest. We go every year, mainly for the exercise. Honestly, we hardly buy anything. And it seemed like the perfect opportunity to give these various apps a test. I turned each one of them on as soon as we exited our car, and then we proceeded to walk up and down the various side streets for hours. Of course, when we were done for the day, I stopped each of the apps. Well, that's what I thought I had done. When we returned home, I realized that one of the apps just kept running and recorded a walk in excess of 50 miles. Of course, 46 of those were done while seated in my car. Well, today I have for you another story about walking. But unlike mine that ended with a journey in the car, this one begins with someone riding in a car. During the morning of December 28, 1951, Mr. and Mrs. J. Warren Poley Jr. and their daughter Donna, now they resided at 1525 College Avenue in Trapp, Pennsylvania, well, they decided to hop in their car and drive to nearby Norristown. The total distance is approximately 12 miles, or 19.3 kilometers, in the southeastern direction along Route 422. As they left their home, they would first pass through the towns of Collegeville, then Trooper, and finally reached Norristown. So basically, and this is kind of important for the story, they drove from Trap through Collegeville, through Trooper, and they finally ended in Norristown. It was in Trooper at 9.30 a.m. that Mrs. Poley first took notice of a family that was walking in the opposite direction of their travel. The family, which consisted of a father, mother, and two very small children, they appeared to be down on their luck. Then later, as they drove home, the police once again passed the family who were now walking through Collegeville. Then, a short time later, Mrs. Polly went for a short drive, and again she passed the plodding family. You know, seeing these poor people three times in such a short period of time, well, it just tore at Mrs. Polly's heart. So upon returning to her residence, she told her husband that they needed to do something.
0: These people are in trouble. I think they need help, and I think we should do something about it.
2: The next thing you know, Mr. Poli is driving his car searching for that family of strangers. Well, he didn't have to go very far. He found them walking in front of the nearby grade school. So Mr. Polly stopped them and invited the family to dinner, and they graciously accepted It was during that turkey meal that the sad story of this wandering family. That's dad Robert Murphy, his wife Jean, their three-year-old daughter also named Jean, and their two-year-old son also named Robert. That's when their story began to be told. Mr. Murphy explained that they had lived in Topeka, Kansas for the past six years and that their home had been destroyed by the raging floods that had recently swept through the region. They'd lost everything, that includes their home and nearly all of their worldly belongings. With no place to live, they made the decision to make their way to the home of Jean Murphy's mom in Philadelphia. But without any money or modern mode of transportation, they were forced to make the approximately 1,200 mile or 1,930 kilometer trek on foot. It took them 44 days to make the journey, and they arrived at her mom's house on Christmas Eve. Now you can call mom Scrooge or whatever choice words you may have, but for some unknown reason, she refused to let her daughter's family stay with her. Although he's a veteran of World War II and an electrician by trade, Robert Murphy was unable to secure work or find suitable lodging in Philadelphia. As a result, the Murphys became discouraged and they began the long walk back to Kansas. It was while they were on this return trip that the police saw the Murphys and invited them to dinner. For a family that suffered so much, they were in surprisingly good shape. They certainly had weather-beaten complexions, but they were well-dressed for the weather. Supposedly, a wealthy man in Ohio had been very generous and provided each of them with warm clothes, gloves, and boots. So after dinner and bundling themselves back up, the Murphys said goodbye to the Pulleys and continued on their journey back to Kansas. Clearly Mrs. Polly was a kind and warm-hearted person who generously opened her home up to strangers in need. But she felt the need to do more. So after they left, she contacted the police and then local radio station WPAZ in Potsdown learned of their hardship, and they broadcast an appeal to the community for assistance. It wasn't long before furniture, food, clothing, and money began to pour in. None, however, were more generous than Raymond F. Culp, who was an employee of the East Greenville Sanitary Company. Mr. Culp owned a 72-acre farm nearby on Route 663 between New Hanover and Pennsburg. When he learned of the family's plight, he immediately called the Pottstown Mercury newspaper and offered Robert Murphy a job on his farm. Not only that, but since his eight-room farmhouse only housed his family of four, that's Mr. Culp, his wife, and their two sons, the Murphys were welcome to occupy the other four rooms. Mr. Culp stated, We know what it is to have troubles. He added, When they arrive here, there will be a lot of surprises. People have been very good to them. They are donating household furnishings and food. One woman is sending a lot of canned goods. We had some furniture that we were going to leave in their part of the house, but guess they'll have almost enough now. People have been so kind in offering them furnishings and help of any kind. Through the airing of their plight, Mrs. Polly learned that others had previously offered the Murphy family assistance. Two days earlier, that's Wednesday night, the Murphys had been provided a place to sleep by the Salvation Army in Philadelphia. By Thursday night, they were staying at another Salvation Army facility in Norristown, and they left that shelter right after breakfast. By Friday morning, that's shortly before they would to be sighted by the Polly's, The Murphys were treated to breakfast by Ralph K. Harner. He just happened to be the chief of police in nearby West Norriton. Harner told the press,
3: They weren't hitchhiking when I saw them. They were just walking pathetically along the pavement. I took them to the state public assistance office in Norristown and left them there while I went to court. When I returned, they had gone. The girl who interviewed them told me That aid wouldn't be available for several days until they proved their identity. So they started out again on foot.
2: He continued.
3: Mr. Murphy told the girl that he lost all his identification papers in the flood, including his service records. I wanted to give them $10 on my return from, but they were gone. It's a strange heart-tugging sight to see them trudging along. I think they'll get plenty of rides along the way.
2: It seemed like everyone was offering some sort of assistance, but there was still one really big problem. The walking Murphys, as the press was now referring to them as, well, they were long gone. So police were asked to watch out for the family. Calling all cars, calling all cars, be on the lookout for Robert Murphy, the father. He is described as being a tall, slender man with thick, dark hair highlighted with graying streaks. He is dressed in a faded suit, a dark sport shirt, a blue woolen Mackinaw jacket, and black buckle galoshes. Jean Murphy, the mother, short in stature, heavy set with a round face, she is dressed in a cotton dress and plain coat. A very colored bandana covers her head. Their son Robert Jr. is dressed in a woolen coat and a knit woolen cap, while their daughter Jean is kept warm by a woolen snowsuit and a bandana. That's all fine and dandy, but where were the Murphys? Luckily, it didn't take long to find them. On Sunday, December 30th, a passing motorist was listening to radio station WHLM and heard the appeal to help locate the family. He spotted the Murphys walking in Williamsport, which is about 150 miles or 240 kilometers northwest of Mrs. Poley's home, and he let them know about Mr. Culp's generous job and home offer. With everything that they owned being carried in just two beat-up suitcases and only 30 cents to their name, this news really couldn't have come at a better time. This was the perfect feel-good story, and as you can imagine, it quickly broke nationwide. In an interview with the United Press, Robert Murphy said,
1: I'm so happy I can't talk. We just had another disappointment last night. Someone told me I might get a job here, but it didn't go through, and it took hours to get shelter for the night. Jean Murphy added, It's wonderful news. We were beginning to think that no one cared what happened to us. Does someone really want us?
2: She continued,
1: That's the way it was on our trip east. Only the people who had a lot of trouble themselves understood and helped us. I guess that's how it always is.
2: Of course, one has to wonder how the Murphys ended up in such dire straits. As the story broke nationally, members of the local press started doing some digging. And as the reporters poked around into the Murphys' past, they were left with far more questions than they had answers. For example, they learned from Captain Newton McClements at the Salvation Army in Norristown That he had given Robert Murphy $2.50, which is about $25 today, and that was to cover train fare to Philadelphia. Huh? What? They supposedly had just traveled from Philadelphia, so why would they need train fare to go back? Next, Murphy said he'd applied for Red Cross aid shortly after the flood had destroyed their nine room home in Kansas but a check with the director of the Midwestern office of the Red Cross that's Robert Edson he could find no record of a Robert Murphy ever applying for aid either during or after the flood then during a radio interview on December 31st of 1951 Mr Murphy mentioned he had studied to be an electrical engineer at the University of Kansas but under re-questioning, he changes alma mater to Kansas State. Well, maybe that's just an error on his part, but local reporters were starting to think you know, that the details of his story, well, they just didn't add up. So during an interview with the Murphys at the Culp Farmhouse, WPAZ News Director Sidney Omar, he decided it was time to ask the Murphys about the inconsistencies in their story and find out what was really true. Well, I'm going to leave you in a bit of suspense here while we take a quick break to hear from the sponsor of today's podcast. But when we come back, I'll let you know what happened next. I'm quite certain you're going to find it very interesting. Welcome back. Just prior to our break, News Director Sidney Omar was questioning the Murphys as to what was really true about their story. Well, it turns out that none of it was. It was all one big lie. They had never lost everything that they owned in the Kansas floods. In fact, they had never lived in Kansas at all. The family started telling the Kansas flood story the previous August, but they had received no public attention until Mrs. Poley befriended them. They would simply move from town to town telling their fictitious tale, you know, maybe get a meal, some lodging, and a few bucks, before moving on to the next town. Not only had they not been in Kansas, but they weren't even the Murphys. They were the Lily Bridges. Dad was Robert Roy Lillybridge, who was born on December 9, 1911, in Baltimore, Maryland. Mom was Philadelphia native Jean McClinchy. They had been married during the war, and it was the second marriage for both. So, why the name Murphy? It turns out it was Jean's last name from her first marriage. Nearly all of what Robert Lillybridge initially told the press proved to be fictitious. You see, he wasn't a decorated World War II veteran. Instead, he had served in the Merchant Marine assisting with the war effort. And what about his electrical engineering studies at the University of Kansas, or was it Kansas State? It turns out his education ended in the eighth grade. Once the hoax had been exposed, both Lily Bridge and his wife admitted they had been imprisoned one time each but they never elaborated on what the charges were. Lilybridge said,
1: I'm sorry about the whole thing. We intended to settle down here. Pottstown was the only place where people were really concerned about us. He added, I'll tell the kids that we just forgot to take the stuff with us.
2: Since there was no crime committed, after questioning, the Lilybridges were released by authorities and they were once again back on the road. Behind them, they left all the money, clothing, food, and gifts that the people of Potsdam and the rest of the nation had donated to help them. Mr. Culp, whose offer of his home and a job went above and beyond what most people would do, offered up the following words. We tried to do the right thing. He went on to say, We feel awful. We opened our hearts and home to them, and we thought they were good people. A lot of other people believed their story, too. I don't know what to say, except that I pity their little children, who are innocent. Letters written by readers to the Potsdam Mercury weren't as kind. That
3: so-called Murphy family should never have been brought back to Pottstown. It is such irresponsibility which weakens public faith in our community leaders.
1: It is hard to believe that residents in and around Pottstown would go so far out of their way to help the walking Murphys when they don't adequately take care of their own.
2: It is unfortunate that people with so much charity in their hearts should be taken in. I would like to say to them, don't be disillusioned. For every four deceitful
1: people in this world, there are 4,000 honest ones. The misfortune you have suffered should not deter you from lending a helping hand again. I think Fred Selby and the others of the Mercury should be congratulated for the wonderful job they have done with so-called walking Murphys. The two children are to be pitied, but as for him and her, walking is too good for them.
2: By the time that these and other letters had been published, the Lilybridge family had disappeared from the scene. Where they came from and to where they went is difficult to piece together, but here is what I learned, particularly regarding Robert Lilybridge. On Tuesday, July 13, 1937, A then 25-year-old Lily Bridge was found by a plant watchman in North Camden, New Jersey, after he claimed to have leaped from a bridge into the Delaware River in an attempt to end his life. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail and given a suspended sentence. When asked by the prosecutor as to why he jumped, he replied,
1: I had an argument with my girlfriend. He added, as soon as I touched the water, I knew I had made a mistake and prayed that I might have the strength to get to shore.
2: Then, on November 29th, Lily bridge jumped off that same bridge a second time. While no one was witness to the jump, police found his sweater with three notes pinned to it hanging from the bridge railing. One of the notes said that he had,
1: Played the game of love twice with the same girl and he lost both times.
2: Another, addressed to a cousin in Baltimore, stated that when he received,
1: this note he would be at the bottom of the river.
2: After a thorough search of the water by Harbor Police, no body was found. His girlfriend was identified as Dorothy Huntington. She was living at 2046 Martha Street in Philadelphia at the time. When questioned, she said that the two had a bit of an argument over her seeing another male friend. When Lily Bridge left her home, he seemed a bit down, but he never mentioned anything about committing suicide. Four days later, Lilybridge walked into a newspaper office in Philadelphia and surrendered. Once again, he claimed to have changed his mind as he fell towards the water's surface. Then he swam to shore and hitchhiked his way to New York City. These two jumps were treated as the real deal when they happened. But the lies that he told many years later as one of the walking Murphys questions whether he ever really hit the water or he was simply making it all up to draw attention to himself. He may not have been wanted by his girlfriend Dorothy, but the Secret Service certainly did. After reading about his two suicide attempts, they issued a warrant that charged him with stealing and cashing in a WPA check that had been stolen from his roommate Alec Wood the previous February. On September 17, 1943, he was in trouble with the law once again. This time, the now 31-year-old Lilybridge was picked up for impersonating a member of the armed forces. Dressed in the same military garb that he had been arrested in, he testified that he had purchased the uniform so that he could re-enlist in the army. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't he claim years later that he was in the Merchant Marine? Hmm. Just what is the truth and what are the lies here? Well, it's really hard to know because Lillybridge seemed to blur the lines between the two all of the time. As for their Kansas flood hoax, it wasn't the first time that they had attempted this. The March 11, 1950 issue of the New York Daily News features a photograph of Robert Lillybridge, his wife Jean, 20-month-old daughter Jean, and a six-week-old Robert Jr. sitting in the Newark, New Jersey police headquarters. They may have used their real names this time, but the rest of their story has a very familiar ring to it. 38-year-old Robert Lillybridge was an Air Force veteran who flew 57 missions in the South Pacific which earned him the Distinguished Flying Cross. Wow. The text said that on March 4th, the six-family apartment house that they lived in down in Baltimore had burned to the ground. They lost everything, including the $150 that they had saved up in cash. All of their belongings fit in two small suitcases. Sound familiar? Robert Lillybridge said that his brother James invited them to come stay with him at his home in Newark, but supposedly Jim had never given him the address. They walked all the way to New Jersey and had just five cents in their pocket when they made their way to the Newark Police Department for help. Police searched for the missing brother, but, and this should come as no surprise, they couldn't locate him. Two weeks later, they were in the newspaper once again. They had somehow found their way approximately 350 miles or 560 kilometers northwest to Bradford, Pennsylvania, and told the same hard luck story. The Salvation Army there fed the family, provided them with lodging, and paid for them to take a bus to Union City, Pennsylvania. There they hoped to hook up with an uncle named Lyle Lillybridge. Then, in November 1951, the Murphy-Lily Bridges walked into a restaurant in Everett, Pennsylvania that was owned by Mrs. Karma Wink. They told the same sad story about how the floods in Kansas had wiped away all that they owned. Of course, Mrs. Wink felt sorry for the family, and she provided them with a place to stay for several days. As they departed, the Everett Ministerial Association purchased bus tickets to Raleigh, North Carolina because they had relatives who could help them there. Once they arrived in Raleigh, they headed about 40 miles or 65 kilometers northwest to Eflin, North Carolina. In a letter published by the Pottstown Mercury a couple of months after the hoax was revealed, Reverend James Johnson wrote the following. A month or
3: two ago, my wife and myself picked up four people and brought them to our house and gave them dinner. They said that they had lost everything they had in a flood in Topeka, Kansas and was going to Mobile, Alabama to his brother's home. He said that he was an electrician and his story seemed to be true. So after dinner, I carried them in my car to a church 15 miles from here and told the story to the pastor of the church. He made up an offering of $36 and I carried them to the bus station and bought them two tickets to Mobile, Alabama. I'm almost sure that the people described described the newspaper clipping, which I have enclosed, are the same ones that we picked up. I now know why he did not want their picture taken. I have a friend in Norfolk, Virginia, that picked them up and helped them too.
2: Okay, so they had pulled this hoax or something similar to it many times before. But surely they wouldn't do it again now that they had been caught and the story was in the press nationwide. Or would they? Well, clearly they didn't learn their lesson. On the evening of Monday, December 20th, 1954, which is nearly three years after Mrs. Poley invited the so-called Murphys to dinner, it was reported that police in San, Ohio, had picked up the Lillybridge family after they had been caught trying to thumb a ride on the outskirts of town. The Lilybridges had quite the story to tell. They had been hitchhiking because their home in San Diego, California had burned to the ground. Holy cow. The family had been on the road for the past 105 days, and they were headed to Van Buren, Maine, where wife Jean had an uncle. The kindly policemen reached into their pockets and provided the Lily Bridges with money and arranged for food to be brought into the station for the hungry family. The Salvation Army provided them with a place to stay for the evening and the next morning the police provided them with a road map and the Lily Bridges were once again back on the road. When the story of their generosity hit the local newspapers, the police realized that they had been had. One man said he had picked up a family of the same description in nearby Hubbard, Ohio three days prior and provided them with assistance. The father, who can be presumed to be Robert Lillybridge, told the kind gentleman that their home in Maine had burned to the ground and they were headed to California, the reverse direction of what they told the police. Another man said he had provided the family with a place to stay and $100. And finally, a woman said she had seen the family in Canfield, Ohio two years earlier. That time the Lily Bridges claimed that their home in Florida had burned and they were making their way to Kansas. I guess some people never learn. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: Three Strikes and You're Out is presented each Sunday at 4pm by the makers of Maudine for Dandruff and Maudine Shampoo. Now before we leave, we'd like to tell you how to help rid your scalp of dandruff with very little effort on your part. First. Get a bottle of Mordine for dandruff and a bottle of Mordine shampoo from your favorite druggist. Apply a few drops of Mordine for dandruff to loosen the dandruff scales on your scalp. Then, shampoo your hair thoroughly with Mordine shampoo. You'll find after the shampoo that your hair is soft, clean, and brilliant. Then, rub a few drops of Mordine for dandruff vigorously into your scalp. And remember to use Maudine for dandruff several times a week to help prevent dandruff. With this simple procedure, you'll find that your hair will always be clean and fresh. Remember to get both Maudine for dandruff and Maudine shampoo today. And send all questions for this broadcast to Three Strikes and You're Out in care of KGKO Dallas. Remember to include the neckband from a bottle of Maudine or a facsimile with every home run question. We'll pay $10 for every home run question we use. If you send only $1 questions, you need only send your name and address. All questions become the property of Maudine. None may be returned, and the decision of the judges shall be final. Print your name and address plainly on every question, and listen next Sunday at 4 p.m. Until then, this is your announcer, Perry Dickey, speaking for the makers of Maudine, for umpire Larry Rhodes, for pitcher Jimmy McLean, and the members of both teams and bidding you goodbye.
2: That commercial for Maudine Shampoo is from the January 12, 1941 broadcast of the radio quiz show, Three Strikes and You're Out. The contestants were divided into two teams, that's red and blue, and the questions were fielded using the rules of baseball. It may be that the complexity of the rules prevented the show from becoming a runaway hit. But... All contestants receive both a large bottle of Maudine for dandruff and Maudine shampoo. The winner, if you were lucky enough to be the winner, you also received $25. That's about $425 today. Maudine dandruff shampoo was the creation of Nacogdoches Texas barber, John Lewis Needham. All you need to do is flip his last name in reverse and you get Maudine. M-A-H-D-E-E-N. Traveling salesman Frank Spear Aikman loved the product and he offered to financially back it. The two formed a partnership in 1912. Sadly, Needham died just six years later and control of the company fell to his heirs. After Aikman passed on in 1939, the company was sold several times. Today... Ontario-based Maudine Metaceuticals markets a line of hair care products under the Maudine name. One of those, of course, is for dandruff. Maudine Medidan Dandruff Treatment Shampoo. What a name. I just wanted to give a quick shout-out for a podcast I've been listening to for the past couple of weeks while I've been working on my house. I've been building shelves for my walk-in closet. It's called The Brain Food Show, and it is a podcast brought to you by the team behind the wildly popular Today I Found Out YouTube channel. My students love these videos, and I use them in my classroom all the time. The podcast does deep dives into historical curiosities. You know, everything from how famed Enlightenment thinker Voltaire made his fortune by helping to rig the lottery to that time that Julius Caesar was captured by pirates and the hilarity that ensued. What I like about them using the podcast format is that it allows them to explore topics, you know, some just like the ones that I talk about, in far greater detail than they can do in their YouTube videos. So if you like my podcast, you really should give The Brain Food Show a listen. I've been downloading it on iTunes, but you can also get the show on all the leading podcast platforms. I'm sure it's on all of them. So here's a question for you. The other day, I jokingly told my wife that she was a Lucy Stoner. It's an expression you don't hear much anymore, but my wife is definitely one of them. So do you know what a Lucy Stoner is? Hang around until the end of the podcast, and I'll let you know the answer.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
2: Here are three additional hitchhiking stories from the past. Everyone knows how dangerous it is to pick up a hitchhiker. Well, Wilson Jennings of Paris, Tennessee may have come up with a possible solution to this problem. An article published by the Associated Press on June 7th of 1934 described a unique method that Jennings had conceived of as he hitchhiked from Chicago to California. He stated, quote, If the idea works, handcuffs will be a big part of every hitchhiker's equipment. That's not a typo, he really did say handcuffs. Here's how it worked. First, Jennings would hold up a sign that read, don't be afraid to offer me a ride, you may handcuff me. Then, after a motorist stopped to pick him up, the key was given to the driver who had the option of slapping the cuffs on or not. The driver would then retain the key for the entire ride. The aim of this unique approach was to alleviate any fears that a stopping driver would have. Personally, I'd be suspect of anyone who held up such a sign. I mean, think about it. What would stop the hitchhiker from slapping the handcuffs on me and then driving off with my car and money? In our next story, which was featured in newspapers across the nation in January and February of 1959, we find 21-year-old twins Ben and Glenn Powell hitchhiking around the world. In just 12 weeks, the two made it all the way from Chicago to Buenos Aires. Glenn said, quote, We've always liked to travel even though we never had much money. So we decided to see the world as cheaply as possible by hitchhiking. Ben added, we traveled with the people and lived with the people all through South America. He continued, everywhere we try to go quietly and give a good impression. We found that Latin Americans seem to think that all Americans have a brand new car and are rich. Now they have met two that aren't rich and obviously don't have a car. The two first thumbed their way to Dallas before crossing into Mexico. Lacking any knowledge of the Spanish language, they tried their best with the help of a Spanish phrasebook. As they traveled, their command of the language improved greatly. Somehow, they hooked up with a Texan who was transporting buses to Guatemala. And since his drivers couldn't speak English and he couldn't speak Spanish, the twins were able to step in and act as interpreters. Even if they didn't speak perfect Spanish, it did get the two to Guatemala. Now occasionally they did have to pay for transportation, such as the time that they paid $2.15 each to fly from San Jose in Costa Rica over to Panama. From Panama, they hopped a banana boat that nearly sank as they made their way to Colombia. And then it was on to Ecuador, Peru, and Chile. If you're wondering where they slept and how they obtained food, well, that was fairly simple. You see, as Methodists, they were able to check in with local pastors wherever they went. In exchange for helping Methodist missionaries, the two were provided with meals and lodging. In our final story for today, it was reported on February 8, 1962, that Lubbock, Texas salesman J.E. Ferguson stopped to pick up an elderly man who was hitchhiking on the northern outskirts of Seminole, Texas. Quote, It was a cold day and I picked him up. The man told Ferguson that his name was Wilkins, that he grew up in Coleman County, and that he was in his 70s. He later dropped him off about 40 miles or 65 kilometers away at a traffic light in Brownfield. As he approached the last traffic light as he was leaving Brownfield, he spotted another hitchhiker. Quote, He was in shirt sleeves, and shivering, so I picked him up. The new rider was about 40 years in age and said his name was also Wilkins, which caused Ferguson to do a double take. He then asked the younger man if he was from Coleman County, which he confirmed was true. After Ferguson described the elder man, the younger Wilkins said that it sounded like his dad who he hadn't seen in 14 years. So Ferguson spun the car around and he headed right back towards where he had dropped the father off. He stated, quote, I stopped and they had a reunion right there on the street. He added, I don't usually pick up hitchhikers, but this time I'm glad that I did. They were really happy. So earlier in the podcast, I had asked you what a Lucy Stoner was. Did you know the answer? Well, to answer this question, you should know that Lucy Stone was born in 1818 in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, and she was unlike the vast majority of women of her day. She spoke out against slavery, she was an organizer and promoter of women's rights, and became the first woman in Massachusetts to earn a college degree. Her life story could be a future podcast in itself, so you know don't be surprised if you hear the story someday down the road. In 1853, Stone began a courtship with Henry Blackwell, but she told him that she didn't want to marry because she would, you know, in effect, be surrendering control over her entire life. Yet, as they say, love conquers all. The two married on May 1st of 1855, but it was far from a conventional marriage. You see, the two had secretly made an agreement that allowed for Lucy Stone to retain all of her rights, property, and finances. Should the couple ever separate, they would each forfeit any claim against the other's property. It was quite daring for its time. Since they viewed their marriage as more of an equal partnership, Lucy Stone kept her maiden name, At first, there was some question as to the legality of doing so, which forced her to sign some legal papers as Lucy Stone Blackwell for a period of about eight months. But lawyer and future Supreme Court Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase determined there really was no law forbidding it. So for the rest of her life, Lucy Stone retained her birth name. News of the Stone Blackwell marriage spread like wildfire across the nation. Some were outraged and considered an attack on the sanctity of marriage, while other couples soon followed suit. And that makes my wife Mary Jane a Lucy stoner. That's an expression you don't hear much today. And that's because she married me and kept her maiden name. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I just wanna mention that I have finally created a Twitter account for the podcast. It's at UselessInfoCast. So if you sign up, you'll be among the first to know when a new podcast episode is released. I promise not to just keep sending you messages all the time. The handle again is at UselessInfoCast, so be sure to sign up for that. I haven't mentioned it much lately, but I have written two books and they're both collections of some of my favorite true stories. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. You can get them through your local bookstore, online, and of course from your local library. You can like the show on Facebook. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or through any of the leading podcast directories. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. So be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all of the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye!
3: 18 plus.